Well, good morning. God is radiant. He is light. He is filled with pure light. We see both in, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, as well as in the words of the apostle John in the book of Revelation, that both of these faithful servants of God in their time saw God in a vision. And they saw God in a vision radiantly sitting on his throne in heaven, surrounded by glory. Infinite power resides with God. And radiance surrounds him constantly, always. The almighty eternal one is worthy to be fearfully and faithfully reverenced honored, and worshiped. And that's why we are here today as people claiming to be God's people because of the precious blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As creatures bearing the image of our creator, what or whom should we be reflecting? If we are Image bearers of the creator himself, who should we reflect? Or another way of saying that same thing, if the heavenly father is light, if our heavenly father is light, what ought his children be? Likewise, the radiant glory of our God and Savior is visible, particularly through the majesty of his kingdom. For the the kingdom is a reflection of God himself and of Christ himself. And this kingdom of majesty is intricately intertwined also with the concept of it is God's radiant temple. And that's what I would like for us to think about this morning. The idea that the majesty of God's kingdom is also his temple. We know historically that there was a physical temple that was built many, many years ago in the city of Jerusalem for God by God's people. And we, we see that account you know, told us, for example, in 1 Kings as well as in 2 Chronicles. But what about this structure? And it was a physical structure that made it a house of the Lord. And what made it so radiant before God? Well, we recently studied this subject of uh, the time period of Solomon. And we talked about how all of the precious materials that was used, gold and silver, a number of other things as well. We also examined the idea of the craftsmanship and the artistry artistry of that and the dimensions and the size and, and the idea of spare no expense kind of cost and especially the fact that it was sanctified for a sanctified purpose. And all of that simply points to the fact that God is awesome. He alone is to be revered, and he alone is 
the true essence of awesomeness. But think about the completion of this temple, and it was an amazing structure that is told us in the Old Testament, but who actually saw the interior beauty of that temple? Who actually, when it was all done and completed, and then it was consecrated and dedicated and began to be used, who actually got to see it? Only a very select group of men. That's it. God ordained priests, sanctified ministers. That's it. When you took the nation as a whole, it was a small percentage of the nation that actually saw the radiance of what this temple pointed to. Even King Solomon did not see it. He would not have been allowed to enter that temple because he was not ordained for that kind of ministry. And it is the King Solomon who understood that Jehovah, God Almighty, literally would not have dwelt in this physical structure anyway. He understood that. And at the dedication of the temple, we see here in second, excuse me, 1 Kings chapter 8, in verse 26 and 27, as Solomon the king is praying, and in that prayer, this is, this is what he says in regard to this point. He says, now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word, I pray, be confirmed which you have spoken to your servant, my father David. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. Everything about the temple pointed toward the greatness, the glory, the radiance of God, and only a very select group of, pe of men were allowed to actually see it as they carried out the required things in their worship and service to God. And Solomon understood that God literally wasn't there, even though this was a sanctified place. It was a sanctified structure to glorify God. Let's move many years later after this time period to the time period of Jesus in the, in the time of the apostles where you have the temple in Jerusalem and at this time it is a larger complex. The temple itself has been rebuilt and then there's you got all of these courtyards around it. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing complex that is in place at the time that Jesus lived and the apostles lived. And at that particular time, there was a particular gate, you know, in, at one of those courtyards that was named Beautiful. And you read that about in Acts chapter 3. That you had this beautiful, beautiful gate because it was beautiful. Scholars tell us that uh, this gate, you know, its dimensions were 75 feet high and 60 feet wide. That's a large gate. 
So that's the dimension. So you got this massive gate, and we are told that it was made out of brass, and then on that brass, there were silver and gold plates fastened to it. And this gate faced the east so that the sun, as it rose every morning, it would hit that gate. And it was the beautiful gate. Impressive. All part, once again, to try to show, you know, the radiance of what is associated with the sanctified structure that was in accord with God's will and plan at that time to teach about the awesomeness of God. But what happened to this? What happened to this temple in Jerusalem? Well, in the days of the prophet Jeremiah and in the days of King Zedekiah, Good Bible students understand and know and remember that this temple that Solomon built under his reign, under his direction, that was completed while he was king, that that temple was destroyed. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. But then later, it's rebuilt. You know, we have a remnant, a restoration period, and during that time, the temple is rebuilt by God's people in Jerusalem. But then, when you open your New Testament to Matthew chapter 24, you know, Jesus is in Jerusalem. It is in his last days, his last week. And we're told the first two verses of the 24th chapter that Jesus came out from the temple. Now, he would not have been in the temple itself. He would have been at the complex. He would have been in one of those courts because he was not from the right tribe to enter the temple. But so he'd been there with his disciples, and he says he came out from the temple and was going away from, going away from the temple when his disciples came up to the up to point out the temple buildings to him. So, so they're just talking about everything that is associated with this complex, that is associated with this temple, the house of the Lord. And he says in verse 2, and he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And so Jesus prophesies here that this amazing temple with this immense complex of buildings all to be to the glory of Jehovah God, he says, is going to be destroyed again. And sure enough, historically we know that in AD 70, the Romans did exactly what God willed and what God said. But Why? Why did God allow earthly powers destroy his house, his temple? Why did he allow that to happen, both in the Old Testament time period as well as the New Testament time period? Why? It was an amazing architectural structure to the glory of God. Why did he have that destroyed? Well, one answer is because of sin or and because of unfaithfulness 
That's one answer. But I believe another answer is the fact is because he was seeking something greater. He was seeking something better than simply a beautiful building in which he could not truly dwell. He was seeking a people. He was seeking a fellowship in whom he could dwell. He was seeking a place where his radiant light may be illuminated in the hearts and lives of those individuals. The temple that Solomon built and the temple that rebuilt came short of doing that. And so therefore, God destroyed it so that, they, that he could find a people, a harmonious fellowship dependent upon faithfulness, a people in whom he would truly be their God and they truly would be his people, would be his obedient children. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17 through 22, if you will turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, your New Testaments, and we're going to read these verses. Ephesians chapter 2, 17 through 22, the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is writing to Christians in the city of Ephesus. And he says this to them, I see the Lord to the Spirit says this to them. In verse 17, he says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the corner, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This everlasting kingdom of Christ that reflects the radiance of who our God is and reflects the radiance of the unshakable nature of our King is also God's temple. But we're not, we're not talking about an amazing architectural structure that, yes, had a sanctified purpose. We're talking about a people who have a sanctified purpose. And so we see here as the Spirit speaks to Christians, the Lord is teaching and reminding saints that they are citizens that are growing into a temple, a temple in Christ, a temple for God. Now, citizens make up a country. Citizens make up a kingdom. And so we see the correlation in this, that 
we are citizens of a kingdom. Well, whose kingdom are we citizens of? We're, we're citizens of Christ's kingdom, the unshakable king, you know, kingdom of the one who's king of kings and lord of lords. And this particular king's domain, you know, this king of kings' kingdom is to be a temple. Is to be a temple for God. Now, the kingdom is made of a people, people who have allegiance to the king. And he says, this people whose allegiance is to the king is to be a temple. Now, before these Christians were God's citizens and God's saints, what were they? Well, we're told, for example, in verse 19, you were once strangers, you were once aliens. In a sense, you are not part of this. You are excluded from this. Earlier on in the same chapter, you look in verse, verse 12, you know, and also down in verse 16, you have a couple other concepts that are introduced. It's the idea they were separate from Christ. They were at enmity with God. That's what you were. Outside of Christ, that's what you were, apart from Christ. But now that you have come to Christ, you have made a, you, you confessed allegiance to Christ, and now you put on Christ, you're in Christ, what are you? You are God's kingdom that's growing into a temple that is to reflect the radiance of God. People who are once excluded, people who are once divided are now all one in Christ. One family, one body, one church, one kingdom, one temple. Reconciliation is available to everyone. Peace is achievable for all. And the divine blessings that are immeasurable are attainable for all. Kingdom citizens who make up God's family are growing and being built into a sanctuary whom God may dwell. Intellectually, I think, you know, we all understand that this is not new information to you as Bible students and believers of God in Christ. But do we live this way? Do we see ourselves this way as a collective body of those who've called upon the name of Christ? Do we see ourselves as those, the many who compose the body and the church of our Lord and Savior? Do we see ourselves, we are God's temple? God does not reside just anywhere. God's not going to live just anywhere. He's not going to have fellowship with just everything either. The Apostle John brings that pretty clearly in 1 John chapter 1 and verse you know, 5 and 6 when it talks about how God is light, in him is no darkness. And, and so he has no fellowship with darkness. And so the idea of God taking residence and walking with and in and among people, you know, 
has to be understood in the context that those people that make up Christ's kingdom are a radiant temple for God. All who put on Christ and all who are in Christ belong. We belong. We are God's, in the sense, we've been purchased. We are his possession, possession but, but not just that, but also in the sense, we belong. We're part of something that is phenomenal. We're part of God's unshakable structure, a temple that will never be destroyed, unlike the one in Jerusalem that was destroyed twice. And we're part of that. We have a place, we have a role in the temple of God. Remember, who's, who got to see the physical temple that pointed to the, the, the radiance and the awesome of God? Only a very select group of sanctified, ordained men who are to serve in a certain way. But you, who are in Christ, we who have put on Christ, we enter the temple. And we are the temple. And we, by faith, get to see and try to comprehend the radiance that is to be seen in us. It is a spiritual structure. A spiritual structure that is fitting together. Why? Because, oh, you know, you know, you know, David is such a good guy. No, it's not because David is a such a good guy. It's not the reason at all. It's, it's, it's fitting together because of Jesus. It's, fit, it's fitting together because Jesus is the corner. He is the cornerstone. And when we line ourselves up with Christ, it, amazingly, we all fit together. And it fits together because he is the head. He is the authority. And when we all submit to him, amazingly, we all fit together. It is a living edifice, alive, because it is composed of living parts. It is composed of redeemed souls. Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, you are a living stone. You are a living stone. It's not, you know, matter. You're not concrete, lifeless thing. No, you are a living stone and you now belong. You're part of this because you put on Christ. And you and so together as components coming together, fitted by Christ, by Christ, through Christ, we become God's temple now. And that's what God was desiring all along because this plan in Christ was in the mind of God before he breathed breath into Adam. The idea that he would have a people one day that he could walk with and walk among. He could dwell with them and they could dwell with him. That idea was in the mind of God before he created. And in Christ, God makes that possible. It's not a geographical place. It is a sanctified citizenry. That's what it is. A kingdom, a citizenry under the king of kings, in whom God may take up residence because we are his temple. 
That's why conduct matters. That's why our conduct matters. That's why our behavior matters. Just as it mattered in the Old Testament. You know, the priests that were ordained, the men ordained to be the priest that would serve in all this capacity associated with, you know, their behavior mattered and they were to be holy men living holy lives. And it's true for us today. The temple of God in Christ is to be illuminating God. It's not to be illuminating us. It's to be illuminating God's radiance, God's holiness, God's will, God's calling. And God's inspired scriptures have been revealed to us, have been given to us, have been preserved for us so that we may know this. We may know God that We've been studying in Jeremiah, and Jonathan has reminded so, so, us so well that it is all about knowing God. And so God has given us not just the preservation of the former covenant, but even the greater new covenant in Christ, so that we may know God even better and more fully. And in knowing God, we may become to know about his kingdom, and we can become his kingdom. We become, become his temple, and then in turn, we may know how to live holy lives. Staying in Ephesians, we see in Ephesians chapter 5, you have this call. Once again, in chapter 2, saints, Christians, are reminded you are citizens of an unshakable kingdom. You're citizens of the one who is king of kings, and you are growing into this temple. And so Ephesians talks a lot about, well, how should citizens of the king behave? How should you know, you know, living stones in the temple of God behave? And so it talks very, very, a lot of practical things. And so, for example, you, know, you see in verse 6 of chapter 5, it reads, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Everybody's accountable. Those outside of Christ are accountable. Those in Christ are accountable. Everyone's accountable, and God's wrath will come against disobedience. In verse 7, he goes on, therefore, do not, partake, do not be partakers with them. The idea, don't be partakers of the disposition and the attitude and the life of, of disobedience. You don't partake of that way of living, but rather, he says, do not partake partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, that's your past, but now you are light. You are light in the Lord, walk as children of light. He said, this is what you are, so do it. You are light in Jesus, and so walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You know, actions and behavior of those living stones making up this holy temple, and that's what we are in Christ. Our actions and our behavior are not to be aligned with darkness. And that darkness is described a couple of times in, in the, the, the letter to the Ephesians, this letter to Christians. And just to illustrate that, you see that, for example, in verse 3, 4, and 5 of the same chapter, chapter 5. 
He says, immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Why is that? Because you have been sanctified for a purpose. You have been sanctified to be a living stone and a holy temple that radiates God's light. He so says, so we, he says, that should not even be found among us. Verse 4, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Not only should our actions reflect God's holiness, but also our words should reflect holiness. And that's, that's hard. As James reminds us and as you know, Bill will address in some weeks, you know, Lord willing, in the future, we'll talk about the challenge of the tongue. He says, these things matter because you, you as a body of believers, you as components of this kingdom, you are growing in a temple and you are to be holy in all that you do and say. Verse 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral, impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So we need to be seeking need to be seeking what pleases the Lord, not ourselves, but seeking, as he says here, for example, in verse 9, goodness, righteousness, truth. You know, what does that look like? You know, those are some pretty broad concepts, goodness, righteousness, truth. And we, and we, and we, we have a grasp of what that is. But what are some of, some of the things that are included in that? Well, just look up at the end of chapter 4, <laughs> you know, once again, he's talking to Christians, and he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another and tenderhearted and forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. See, we are to reflect God in our behavior. Paul writes about this as well over in 2 Corinthians where he challenges us to perfect holiness. That's an interesting concept. You know, we are called unto holiness. Peter writes about that. God is, God is holy, therefore be holy as God is. But you think about this idea of perfecting holiness. You know, it's, a, it's a challenge, isn't it? It's a process. It's a growing thing, is it not, for all of us? To perfect holiness in all that we do and say. And so in 2 Corinthians talks, you know, about this idea, this concept of not being unequally yoked. And things like lawlessness and unrighteousness and darkness and and those those things we are to be not connecting with. Don't yoke yourself. Don't harness yourself to those concepts that involve a number of, of attitudes and behavior, sinful things that are not to be named among God's people. But the point is, he's writing to Christians who have cleansed themselves from defilements. They've been washed you know, you know, by the blood of Jesus and they're being challenged to reverently perfect now the holiness unto which they have been sanctified by harnessing yourself to things that are right, 
the things that are true, things that are good, and things that are light. I want to pick up the reading simply there in verse 16, where he says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Rhetorical question, is it not? You know the answer. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God had said. Kind of relates to some things that Tony challenged us with in Wednesday night's invitation. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? We are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, having these promises, this is God's promise to you. Having these promises, if you're in Christ, if you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, brought into the spiritual union by adoption, you are God's son. Not the only begotten, but you are among the many sons, and you are a daughter of the Almighty. You are that. And God desires to be able to walk with you now through your faith, but also one day he wants you to walk with him eternally on those eternal shores. Having these promises, beloved, and you are. You are dearly beloved by God and by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit because sometimes that defilement creeps back in. And we've got to cleanse ourselves again by the power of God through Christ. But cleanse ourselves from the defilement of flesh and blood, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Why? Because you, as a body of God's people, are his radiant temple. And he can't reside with us. He can't have that perfect union with us if we are toying with lawlessness or idolatry. And so we're challenged to live according to our purpose that sanctified person. And in conclusion, let's just end with this very quickly. And that is, there's this warning found over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in the context of proclaiming the gospel. I appreciate your patience with me this morning. Thank you for your kind attention and being so uh, attentive. But let's kind of very quickly look at this final little point and the idea of our personal actions can be destructive not just to ourselves, but our personal actions can impact others as well and can impact God's temple. This is humbling. This is very sobering. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
Looking there, particularly in verse 16 and 17, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And so as he speaks to the congregate of God's people in Corinth, he says, you are the temple, just as that's what Paul told the Ephesian brethren. You are this temple growing into a sanctuary for God. But then he goes on and give the warning in verse 17. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. And so each one of us must be careful how we build on the foundation of Christ. We have to be careful about what we teach. But also we've got to be careful about what we practice. And we have to be careful how we daily live so that we don't, defile so that we don't in a sense destroy hurt harm the temple which we have been sanctified to be the majesty of god's kingdom is visible to us when we begin to understand and see that this kingdom which christ has established is an ever-growing sanctuary for the Almighty. So he can walk with us. He can have fellowship with us. He can have uh, harmony with us. And so each one of us matters to God. Each one of us matters to God. It ma- he, each one of us matters to the Lord Jesus. Each one of us matters you know, to the Holy Spirit. Each one of us matters. And each of our lives matter and impact not just ourselves, but impacts the temple. It impacts and affects the radiance of that temple. So do we illuminate God's holiness, or are we marring God's holiness? Are you walking in the light, or are you walking in darkness? If you're not walking in the light, The gospel message to you is very plain and simple, and it is a call for you to come out of that right now. Come out of that darkness. Be separate and don't touch what is unclean. Because God wants to take up residence with you. He wants, like Jesus said to Zacchaeus so long ago, I'm going to your house. And that's what God wants. wants. God wants to be so intricately part of your life that he is with you 24-7. And he wants us as a body of believers to reflect that we are growing into this sanctuary of God. If you're not a Christian, you're outside of Christ, And that sin is separating you from God. And in that condition, you're lost. And until you come to Jesus, you're without hope. Hope is found in Christ. And we want to urge you that if you believe Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you will be moved by your faith today to repent of your sins, to come out of the darkness, to confess your faith in Jesus as the Son of God and the one who was raised on the third day as Lord and King, and be buried with him in baptism. 
And God says, I will forgive you. I will take away those sins. I will cleanse you completely. And those sins will not be remembered. Because when God forgives, he forgives. If we can help you anyway spiritually, we invite you, encourage you, please come forward, make your wishes known, or we stand and sing the song that's been selected.